Would you pray with me? Jesus, that is our prayer, that we would see you this morning, that we would have uh, hearts to see you in your glory. We know that you are exalted in the heavens. We know that you reign above the cherubim and the seraphim. We know that you are reigning right now in victory, Jesus. So I pray that you would, in your victory, at the same time be near to us. I pray that you would work in our hearts to soften us to your truth so that we could become more like you even today. We pray these things, Jesus, in your name, for your glory. Amen. Please be seated. And you can turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5. And happy Father's Day this morning to all the dads out there. We are going to, after the service, we have root beer floats for all the dads and the kids. So root beer floats out in the lobby. So we're going to be, this morning, Ephesians 5, just looking at two verses, Ephesians 5, verses 1 and 2. Uh, Next week, so we'll be back, we'll be back in our uh, exposition of Revelation. But let me read this passage as we begin our time, Ephesians 5, verses 1 and 2. These are God's words through the Apostle Paul. He writes, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love. Just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Well, recently I've been asked a a series of questions that I've I've been unable to answer. Uh, A certain type of question that's, that's really hard to answer. You've probably been asked this type of question. It comes in this form. What is the, the best advice you could give or what is the most important advice you could give to, you know, a young married couple? Uh, we've been through graduation season. What is the best advice you can give to the, the high school graduate? And this question is so hard because it's paralyzing. At least for me, it's paralyzing. Because uh, just, just one piece of advice, you want to write a little booklet for that married couple. Let me tell you some, some dangers to avoid. Let me give you some examples. Let me write down uh, all these details that you need for the rest of life. I was at a graduation party, and it had you know, these little, little cards, and it said, please give the graduate one piece of advice. And uh, I didn't fill it out. I couldn't. I couldn't. So if you're, a, if you're a graduate, I apologize. I have no advice for you. Because it's hard. It's hard to, to come up with. What's the one piece of advice? It's paralyzing. But, but as I thought about that question, and it came in a different form even this week. What's one advice you have for dating? Maybe you've got the question, what's one piece of advice for parenting that you have? And really, it is, it is a simple answer. You know, the most obvious answer, the, the churchy answer, if you will, uh, the one piece of advice is to, to love Christ. It's actually pretty simple. Love Christ. Prioritize, number one, in your parenting, uh, in your school, in your education, in your marriage. Prioritize Jesus Christ. Ha- have a vibrant love for him. You're not going to be a good worker. You're not going to be a good parent. You're not going to be a good spouse if you don't first have a a vibrant relationship with Christ. And this is what Jesus says. What's the the most important? What's the greatest commandment? Love God, all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. All of you, all of your being going after love for God. And then the second commandment, like it. What flows out of that? Love for one another. So we're going to talk this morning about love. Uh, You saw it in the passage the thrust of this passage, to walk in love, to be a church that is marked by love. And some biblical words are hard to define. 
Love is one of those words that I'm sure if you asked everyone in this room for a definition, they'd, they'd have a different aspect of love. It's a little bit like, you know, putting a fork in jello, trying to bring a, a firm definition. We usually define love more by, by what we see, by acts, by what it looks like. You know, when you hear love talked about like a, a feeling, an emotion, you know, a young couple that says we are in love. You know, I get the, the warm fuzzies for this person and that's what they mean maybe by love. And, and as you know, biblical love is much more than just a, a warm feeling. Obviously, it involves emotion. It involves the, the inner being. It involves feelings. Uh, parents, you know this. As you see your kids make mistakes, if you've seen your kids run toward destructive things, I mean, you feel sorrow. You feel emotion. You feel pain. So, of course, love involves emotion. But it's much more than emotion. Love is a, a genuine concern for others that leads to action. A warm affection, but affection that leads you to act on behalf of others. Uh, married couples, you know this. You know why the, the definition of just being in love is lacking. You know, if you've been married for any length of time, if you're 15 years into marriage, on the, you know, the 5,000th morning in, you may not wake up and feel this warm, fuzzy feeling toward your spouse. But at the same time, you know the, the fierce loyalty. You know sacrificial love. You know that after conflict, after discouragements, after that argument, the next day you get up and your spouse still serves and you still have conversations and you still laugh together and you still care for each other. You know, that's more akin to biblical love. A simple description of biblical love, you could say, is love seeks the highest good for another. Love seeks the highest good for another. It doesn't desire to possess someone else, but desires to give Uh, It's not based on merit, not based on achievement, not looking at what can you do for me, but how can I serve you? You know, it's it's hard to define, but but we can see it. It's easy to see. 1 Corinthians 13 is obviously a a great passage to think about love, all these actions of love. You think about that passage and how many actions are in there. Love is patient, kind, long-suffering. It gives, it protects, it bears, it endures, it believes. So we're going to look this morning at this command to walk in love. To be a church that is marked by love. That is marked by sacrificial service for others. Marked by a genuine concern for the good of others. And we're going to look at some motivations for our love. We're going to look at what motivates us to love. But before we dive into the the specifics here in Ephesians 5, I want to take a little tour of the church of Ephesus. The, the believers who, who this book is written to in Ephesus, we actually get several instances. We get to see their love over time. And the reason I was drawn to this passage is because of the, the letters to the churches. If you remember the first letter it's been preached on a couple months ago, the letter to the church of Ephesus. And I want you to turn there to Revelation chapter 2. And you remember the rebuke, Revelation 2, about this church that had left their first love. So I want to do a little time travel. Look at the, this church in Ephesus. Look at their love. A little bit like a Christmas Carol. You know, Ebenezer Scrooge getting to the end of his life and then looking back. Let's look at all these mistakes that you have made. So we get to see the end of the story here. This church that left their love. Uh, they began with a pure love for Christ. Joy-filled service for one another. You know, just excited to be here. And, and slowly that joy-filled service became an obligation the doctrinal fidelity became a source of pride until they have no, left, no love left at all. 
So read with me Revelation 2, verses 2 through 4. This is Jesus to the church in Ephesus. He says, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men and you put them to the test, those who call themselves apostles and they are not. And you found them to be false and you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you that you have left your first love. This is a church that was filled with Christian activities. Lots of program, lots of ministry. They're working hard, it says. They're toiling, they're laboring. They put out false teachers. They have sound doctrine. It goes on to say that they hate the works of false teachers. They're not tolerating worldliness in the church. And what's so helpful to think about as we, as we consider love this morning is that all of those activities, the, the teaching, the striving, even church discipline in the church, all of those were done without love. And it's really instructive for us because the solution isn't just do more things, do more activities. Jesus says in the next verse to repent. There is a, an about face needed here. There is a, a heart disposition that must be corrected. You must address the, the heart motivation. You have to go after the pride and the selfishness in the heart. And why Ephesians 5 is so helpful because it gives us motivations. It gives us the, the heart focus that we should have in our love. I want to look at one other timestamp in this church. Go to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 1. One other uh, event in the life of this church, 25 years earlier, 1 Timothy 1, verse 5. And you remember 1 Timothy, Paul sends his most trusted disciple, Timothy, to Ephesus to, to strengthen the church, to appoint leaders in the church, to put out false teaching, to preach the word, to raise up the next generation of the church. And so all of these tasks are in front of Timothy. But, but look what Paul points to as the goal for all of these things. 1 Timothy 1, 5. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. It's so helpful when we have these statements in the Bible, the purpose statements. You can say, okay, this is what the Holy Spirit wants to accomplish in this church. He wants to accomplish love in the church. Devoted love, sacrificial love, a pure-hearted love. So all of these tasks to put out false teachers, teach sound doctrine, raise up men, appoint elders. But he's saying do all of it with the purpose of love, to be a church that is marked by love. So Paul is going after this issue in this church. He's preparing them. When you get to Revelation 2, it's not because they weren't instructed. It's because they did all of these tasks and they forgot why they were doing them. They forgot the motivation behind them. Uh, One more timestamp for you. Look at the end of Ephesians 6, the very last verse. Of Ephesians 6 here. Ephesians 6, 24. The, the last words of, the, of this book that the, the readers will see, the hearers that are given this book, the last thing they'll hear, Ephesians 6, 24. Paul says, Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with incorruptible love. Paul here ends the letter with the one piece of advice. You know, the card in the, in the graduation box. What's the one piece of advice? Reminds them of their love for Christ. Don't forget this most important thing, the, your love for your Savior. Now, after all that, turn to Ephesians 5. Uh, hopefully, this heightens the urgency for you. Hopefully, it heightens the importance. 
We have to, to cling to these truths. The stakes are high. We have to fight for this or else we will lose this. And we're going to walk through this passage and he's going to give us some tools to help cultivate our love. A love for God that would spill out in love for others. So Ephesians 5, and as we dive in, you see the word love throughout. And Paul is using uh, this word in, in several different ways. As an adjective, as a noun, as a verb. Look at 5.1. He says, as beloved children. You are beloved children. He uses it as a noun in verse 2. Walk in love. Your life should be characterized by love. And then look at what Jesus Christ also loved you as an action, as a verb. This is what Jesus did. So clearly the, the thrust of this passage, the central theme, is to, to love, to walk in love. This word walk, this is a, an Old Testament idea, a Jewish idea of, of the total, totality of your life, everything that you do, who you are and what you do. That is your walk. Think about a culture without cars, without public transportation. They're walking everywhere. So he says to, to walk this way. He's saying your life should be characterized by this. When you wake up in the morning, until your head hits the pillow at night, what should your life look like? It should be characterized by love. And this command to walk, it shows up five different times in chapters four and five of Ephesians. You have the, the first three chapters of Ephesians are these grand truths about God, about the gospel, about what God has done in Christ, what he's doing in the church. And you get to chapters four and five, and now there's something required of you. There is a, a response You have received God's mercy. You have been predestined and adopted. You have been purchased. You have been redeemed. God has sent his spirit. He has purchased an inheritance for you. And in light of all of this, you must walk a certain way. You must live a certain way. And here, specifically, in chapter 5, that way is the way of love. There's uh, some houses. If you walk into some houses, they have what might be on, on the wall, house rules. In this house, I don't know if you've seen any of those, if some of you have those in your home. In this house... You know, we pick up, we tell the truth. I saw uh, someone in the church, I won't, I won't call them out, but they have these house rules and they're, they're great. One of them is don't do, don't do stupid stuff. Don't say stupid stuff. Don't be lazy. These are the, the rules they have, some of the rules they have for their home. When you think about the church, this is the household of God. And what is the, the rule? What is the banner as you walk into the church? The rule for the church is love. This is our house rule, to love one another. And we're going to see some motivations in this passage. Two motivations that fuel our love for one another. These logs on the fire of our love. To keep it burning. And we talk about motivations. This is why we do what we do. To to drive you to to think a certain way. To be motivated by certain things. Consider Revelation 2, the church in Ephesus, where they got to. They did all of the activities. They were all about externals. Lots of Christian activities. They busied themselves. But what Jesus is after is the heart, the motives of your heart. That is where worship is found, in the heart. So there's motivations in this passage, getting the right motives, fueling our activities. We said love was a sacrificial service, seeking the highest good for another. And obviously today is Father's Day. I think the the most natural place we can see that, one of the most obvious examples of sacrificial love is parents. And you know this, parents, especially the little ones. You know what it is to, to love sacrificially. I think about, for me, just the, the realization of, oh yeah, this is what it means to be a dad. We had uh, you know, found out we were having our first baby was a boy. And you think about when you're having a boy, you get excited for all these things. I'm going to teach him how to shoot hoops. We're going to fish together. I'm going to teach him how to be a man. 
And then uh, I had the, the more hard reality of, oh, this is what parenting is. A, a couple months in, you're holding that little one, crying in the middle of the night. And I'm sure many of you have experienced this, the, the throw up all over me, all over the floor. All right, I remember in that moment realizing, oh, this is what parenthood is. It's not just about me having fun. It's not just about shooting hoops together. I actually have to, to care for this child, this helpless baby. You know, young parents, you, have the, you know the, the physical demands of being a parent. You know, late nights, sleeplessness, a lot of work, very low pay. <laughs> but then as your kids get older, you, you, older parents that have kids even out of the home, it doesn't stop. Uh, we see the older, older parents in this church still praying, still agonizing, still sleepless nights, still sacrificing for their kids. This is what parenting is. It's sacrificial love. In this parent-child relationship, this is the, the first motivation for us. But here the motivation is us as children, God as father, God's fatherly love for us. This is motivation number one, God's fatherly love. Christian, you are loved by God. You are one of his children. He loves you. He has affection for you. He cares for you. Look what he says in verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. He's driving to verse 2 to walk in love for your life to be characterized by this love. But first, he front loads it. I'm going to give you this, this other instruction, this, this instruction to consider, to imitate God, be imitators, to, to act like God, to pattern your life after God, to be a copy of, to mimic the characteristic of someone and imitate God. And what exactly about God? Is it all of his attributes on display here? Think about in Leviticus, God says, be holy as I am holy. Well, that's true, yes. We, we pursue holiness because God is holy. But specifically here, in this immediate context, I think he's talking about the way that we treat one another. Look at the verse 32, the, the immediately preceding verse in chapter 4. It says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. So we imitate God by treating others the way that God has treated us. So he is saying here to imitate God by loving others the way that God has loved you. To forgive others the way that you have been forgiven. To imitate God in the, in the way you interact with one another. And imitate God's love as children, as family members, as brothers and sisters as those loved by God and accepted into his family. So that is to say, love others in this family the same way that God loves you. Be motivated by God's love. Be filled up with God's love. So that would pour into others. And if your life is to be characterized by love, you must remember that you are a beloved child. He says at the end of verse 1, as beloved children. This word beloved is a word for an only child, a special child. This is an affectionate, warm, personalized love, individualized love, a care that God has for each believer, that you are personally known by God. There is a, an intimacy of relationship. God knows you by name. He cares for you uniquely. And we, we can so quickly forget this. We talk about God's justice, and we should we talk about his wrath, and we should, but we must not forget God's love for his children. He, he wants the best for you, Christian. He cares for you. 
individually, affectionately. And while studying this passage, I've thought about my, my own children. It's easy to relate to, to see, oh yeah, the love I have for my kids. I know the affection and care I have for them, imperfectly, sinfully. And parents, you know this. You want the best for your children. You care deeply for them. You're concerned. You labor for their good. I was reminded of this as I uh, watched my son play basketball this year in a basketball game. And he's, he's playing a game, and he gets decked, just taken out by another kid. Hits the ground, he's bleeding. And you know, when you're a four-year-old, we have a four-year-old girl, if she falls to the ground and is bleeding, you're going to run over and help her up. But when your 12-year-old son hits the ground, you know, you wait. I'm going to see how he responds. I'm going to see if he gets back up. I'm going to see if he has the, the fortitude to keep playing. And I just remember with pride watching as he got up, you know, wipe the blood off and, and finish the game. And I'm not, I'm not excited. I'm not, I don't enjoy seeing him get hurt. Of course not. But thrilled to see him get up. Thrilled to see him maturing, growing. Because I love him. I want the best for him. And just consider God's love for his children. We have a father who loves us. He is not indifferent. He is not carelessly watching as we struggle. He walks with us. He cares for us. He helps us. He wants us to grow in sanctification, maturity. He wants you to trust him and obey him. He is not distant. You know, we'd all acknowledge that that God is creator. Everyone would say yes and amen. But sometimes we imagine that God is just passively watching his creation. Hebrews says that Jesus is actively upholding the universe. God is actively caring for us. He is purposely working out all things for our good. So when you ask God for strength in trials, when you ask God for strength to fight sin, do you ask as God, as a God who loves you, as one who is for you? Do, do you pray with an attitude that says, you are for me, you want me to be sanctified? God, would you strengthen me today? Because I love you. And I know that you love me. And he calls us here children. I mean, just emphasizing the, the dependence that we have. We are not strong. We're not independent. We're not mighty. We are needy. We are weak. Like, like little ones in a home, needing food, protection, care. So part of this motivation here to recognize God's fatherly love is to recognize our own dependence. To remember how needy we are. To, to see yourself rightly as a dependent child in this family. Do you read your Bible this way? Do you read your Bible as a dependent child? I just want to hear the voice of my father. We uh, took a road trip a couple years ago and we bought an audiobook uh, series. For, it was for our kids. It's called Wing Feather, a kids' series. And after we got started getting into it, it was a lot more for me and Ashley than for the kids. You know, they're like, can we do something else? No, stop, we're listening. <laughs> and, uh, and in this book series, there's, uh, it's about these kids that are separated from their dad, their, their dad who's a king, they find out. And, uh, and in the book, they, they receive gifts from their dad. One of these gifts is a, a letter from the father that he writes to, to one of the children when he's, when he's young. And this becomes the most prized possession, this letter from his father that he reads over and over again. When he thinks he's lost, it's the, the biggest loss, his most prized possession. I mean, do you, do you think about the Bible this way? Do you read like this? As a child who has this letter from our father, a prized possession, I want to hear his voice. I know that he has affection for me. I want to read what he says. I want to pray so I can talk to him. I've heard it, heard it said recently, if you want to hear God's voice, what do you do? You read your Bible. And if you want to hear God's voice out loud, what do you do? 
You read your Bible out loud. We have, we have the voice of God here. His words to his children. He is near. It's in our own language. So as children of the king, we must cultivate this love. We must remember that we are adopted sons and daughters of God. So as you step into relationships, you step into others' lives with confidence that I'm a child of the king, I'm loved by God, without fear of what others think, because you have the, the pleasure of your father, secure in the love of God, loving others like you have been loved, treating others like you have been treated by God, forgiving others in this way, being concerned for their good like God has been concerned for your good, never forgetting that God loves you. Christian, God loves you. And maybe at this point, you, you might be even uncomfortable with all of the talk of God's love. If you've been in the, the church, broader evangelical world for any length of time, you, you, like me, have probably heard people abuse this truth. If someone starts talking about God's love, you might sit up a little straighter. Uh-oh, what are they going to say next? You know, because people use this truth to justify sin. They, they say things like, God loves me just the way that I am. They, they cling to, to lifestyles God is opposed to and say, but no, but I'm loved by God. They justify their sin. It, it becomes some kind of spiritual mysticism. You know, that just a, a feelings-based Christianity. Nothing concrete, nothing biblical, but I'm loved by God. I'm a child of God, so I can do whatever I want because God wants me to express myself. I remember a meeting I was in several years ago where uh, it was for a Christian organization. This lady prayed in the meeting, and her prayer was something like, hey God, what's up? It's me. How you doing? And uh, afterwards, she said, oh, that's just how I, that's how I pray because God's my daddy. You know, I talk to him like, like he's my father. And there was just something disarming. Like God is this big teddy bear. Like you talk to God like two freshman girls texting each other. And the problem with this, this wishy-washy, you know, feelings-based view of God, it obviously trivializes God's love. People use it as a license for sin. They might use it to salve a burdened conscience. But the problem is it neglects the cost of this love. As you read Ephesians 5.1, asking the question, what does it cost? How do I get this love? What is the cost of this love? And you know what the cost is of God's love. The cost was the blood of his son. This shocking thing that, that God's son would be slaughtered in the place of sinners. That God's holiness. His holiness would, would only, the only acceptable sacrifice would be the, the, the death of the son of God in the place of sinners. That Jesus Christ, the righteous one, would take the place of the guilty. And that brings us to the, the second motivation here. Second motivation to fuel our love for others. First, you are loved by God. Second, you have been purchased by Christ. Jesus' sacrificial death. This is a, a motivation for us as we step into relationships, as we step into the lives of others, to consider Jesus' death in our place. Obviously, this kind of love is more than an emotional response. A genuine concern for others, yes, that leads to action, that seeks the highest good. And the highest example of that is Jesus Christ. Look what he says in verse 2. Walk in love just as Christ also loved you, gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. 
This is personal, sacrificial love on display. Christ loved you. Personalized love. Like a beloved child, personal love. Here, Christ loved you personally. He gave himself freely. This ultimate act of love. He willingly gave himself. A choice that he made. Willingly went to the cross. Willingly took the crown and the beatings. Willingly took God's wrath, God's anger. And he had command of of legions of angels. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. Jesus is the one who spoke the universe into existence. And he freely gave himself, his own body as the offering. It says he gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice. Offering and a sacrifice. I think using both of these terms, what's in view here is a totality Old Testament sacrifices. This is a a once-for-all sacrifice. You have the whole Old Testament sacrificial system. There's burnt offerings, grain offerings, peace offerings, atonement offerings, guilt offerings. And Jesus here is the once-for-all offering. He paid it all. He was the offering and the sacrifice. Listen to Hebrews 10, 11, and 12. You, You know this passage well. Author of Hebrews, Hebrews says, Every priest stands daily, ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God so that he can say now, it is finished. And it says in verse 2 that this offering, this sacrifice was a, a fragrant aroma, a pleasing aroma, a sweet-smelling aroma to his father. The picture here of, a, of an altar, a sacrifice, a, a sheep or a goat on the altar. And the, the smell coming up from the flames and the smoke of the, the animal cooking. It's wafting up. I like to cook with a charcoal grill. If you cook with charcoal, you, you smell like charcoal. Your hair smells like charcoal. And what I love about it is you know when you smell the charcoal that the good food is coming. There's about to be a feast. We're going to have red meat. It's going to be great. So when, that, when you smell that, that smell means we are about to eat something good. And here, the, the pleasing, fragrant aroma is not the, the animal. It's not the, the goat or the sheep. But on the altar is the spotless, sinless lamb of God, Jesus, the one who is truly beloved by his Father, the only begotten Son. And God is pleased with this aroma. That, that means to say he is accepting this offering. God the Father accepts the offering of Christ. Jesus' death on the cross satisfies God's white-hot anger against sin. Scripture, as you know, says the wages of sin is death. The punishment, what we deserve for our sins, is death. And guilty sinners cannot stand in God's presence without a covering, without a mediator, without a sacrifice. In the Old Testament, sacrificial system, when the worshiper came to the altar, they are saying, I deserve what this animal is getting. I deserve this death. And God will allow them to come to his temple to worship only because they have a covering for their sin, only because there was blood sacrifice, because there was death. And that's what's going on here. This is substitutionary atonement. This is the gospel message, a wrath-bearing substitute in our place. Jesus, please the Father, so that now sinners can be reconciled to God. 
This is the, the good news. How do I get to heaven? The good news of the gospel is that you have a savior. You have Jesus dying in your place so you can be reconciled. You can be part of God's family. And the reason you are able to say God loves me, the reason you are able to say he cares for me, he works all things for my good, is only because the Son of God bled and died in your place. God's justice is satisfied by the death of his own son. You know, this is not a feel-good story where you say to an unbeliever, God loves you. He wants to meet you right where you're at. You know, God is not looking down from heaven on mankind. He's not saying, look at how special and sweet those guys are. They're trying really hard. They're really trying. They're doing a good job. No, this message says that we have rebelled against God, that we are guilty, that we are culpable. Look down at Ephesians 5, 6. He says at the end of Ephesians 5, 6, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. There are different children in view there. Sons and daughters of disobedience, not children of God. They don't have the love of God. They, they experience only his wrath. And if you do not know Jesus Christ, if you're in this room and you are not united to Jesus by faith, if he is not the Lord of your life, the, the Savior of your soul, and maybe you hear these, these truths about loving others and you have no idea what it is to sacrificially love. You wake up in the morning and all you think about is you. The banner over your life is me, me, me. If that's you, then what you need to hear this morning is not, not that God loves you, but that you are on a path toward destruction. You, you are on a path toward hell and judgment. God is only a father to those who have trusted in Jesus Christ. And you must also know that there is hope for you. There is reconciliation. There is forgiveness. There is pardon for sinners, for all of those who come to God in humble faith, who agree with God about their sin, who cry out to Jesus. There is pardon. This holy God offers pardon for sins. And this pardon does not come without cost not without blood, not without sacrifice, not without a payment. The Father sent his beloved Son, the one whom he loved most, the one whom he loved perfectly throughout eternity past. Incorruptible love between Father, Son, and Spirit. The one Jesus whom heaven, all of heaven sings his praises. He is worthy of all praise. This is the one who died in our place so that we could have access to the love of God. Without Christ, we have no access. We have no right to make any claims about these promises. We have no right to say, God loves me. But for those who are united to Jesus by faith, now we can take hold of these promises. We can say, I am indeed loved by God. We can with confidence approach God's throne because our, our guilt has been paid for. We can say, Abba, Father, because we have an advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous, so you can today, again, cling to these promises, Christian. The promise of God's love if you are united to Christ. And then the question could be asked, well, how do you know if you have done that? How do I know if I have God's love? What's the proof? Not just some warm, fuzzy feeling. Not just some inner peace that's hard to define. Obviously, in context here, you're going to love Christians. That's what Jesus says in John 13. 
Everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. But there's another indication even in these verses. Look at verse 3. Right after this section about love, about Jesus' love, verse 3, but immorality, impurity, greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. He goes on to say that your appetites will change. The one who is loved by God, the one who loves God, has new appetites, has new desires. They, they love what God loves. They hate what God hates. Look at verse 5. He says, This you know with certainty. No immoral, impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. He calls the, the covetous one. The one who constantly wants more and more for themselves. The one who is so self-focused. This insatiable desire for me. He says that is idolatry. That is a misplaced love. That is self-love. And the one who has experienced God's love has a new disposition towards sin. Has new affections. Ability now to actually please God. A desire to obey. Motivated to obey because I don't want to grieve the Father who loves me. So this love for God, this love from God, motivates us to love each other, motivates our obedience. It's so helpful for us, because if you see a, a lack of love in your life, I mean, you, could, you could ask the question, are there sins? Is, are there areas? Are there fleshly things I'm allowing in my heart? What is, what is causing me to have a decrease in love for others? Because the one who is pursuing holiness, that has this, this love, this affection, their appetite for sin is going to decrease. They're going to, they're going to love what God loves. Uh, this summer, I'm reading a, a biography of uh, John Payton. It's just a wonderful, it's actually an autobiography. And he was, if you don't know who John Payton is, he was a missionary, a pioneer missionary to this island group called the New Hebrides uh, in about the 1850s. So he sails over there, he preaches the gospel, plants churches, deals with a lot of tragedy. But in this autobiography, he talks about his own father, uh, this stout, godly man. And he talks about the, the motivation of his father's love that carried him. And I just want to read an excerpt here. I think it's a good, good Father's Day excerpt to read, just about the, the desire of a son to please his father. And the setting here is, is Peyton is going off from home to seminary, leaving home, his father walking with him to the train station, not knowing if he's ever going to come back. And this is what he writes. My dear father walked with me the first six miles of the way. His counsels and tears and heavenly conversation on that parting journey are fresh in my heart as if it had been but yesterday. And tears are on my cheek as freely now as then. Whatever memory steals me away to the scene. For the last half mile or so, we walked on together in almost unbroken silence. His lips kept moving in silent prayers for me, and his tears fell fast when our eyes met each other in looks for which all speech was vain. We halted on reaching the appointed parting place. He grasped my hand for a minute in silence and solemnly and affectionately said, God bless you, my son. Your father's God prosper you and keep you from all evil. Unable to say more, his his lips kept moving in silent prayer. In tears we embraced and parted. I ran off as fast as I could and went about to turn a corner in the road where he would lose sight of me. I looked back and saw him still standing with head uncovered where I'd left him, gazing after me. Waving my hat in adieu, I rounded the corner and out of sight in an instant. But my heart was too full and sore to carry me further. 
So I darted into the side of the road and wept for a time. Then rising up cautiously, I climbed the dike to see if he yet stood where I'd left him. And just at that moment, I caught a glimpse of him climbing the dike and looking out for me. He did not see me, and after he gazed eagerly in my direction for a while, he got down, set his face toward home, and began to return, his head still uncovered, and his heart, I felt sure, still rising in prayers for me. I watched through blinding tears till his form faded from my gaze, and then, hastening on my way, I vowed deeply and often by the help of God to live and to act so as to never grieve or dishonor such a father." He goes on to say that the appearance of my father when he parted was often through life risen vividly before my mind. The memory of that scene not only helped to keep me pure from prevailing sins, but also stimulated me in all my studies that I might not fall short of his hopes and all my Christian duties I might faithfully follow his shining example. I love this picture of John Payton on Father's Day here. Just to consider the love of an earthly father that fueled a son he says, fueled him to want to wanna, to walk in obedience, to not grieve his father. How much more, Christian, for us? How much more for us who have been loved by God, who have been loved perfectly by the King of heaven? How much more should that motivate us? And these motivations, they don't stop with God's love for us. They become a fuel then for love for one another. That love that we have experienced fuels love, causes us to be the most loving people on the planet. We've been freed from self-love. We've been freed from bondage. We've been freed from this all-consuming desire for self so that now you can love others from the heart you can love. And it's just so helpful in this passage that we have uh, just some tools here to help cultivate our love. Again, verse, chapter 4, verse 32, the preceding verse. As you think about love for others, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other as God in Christ has forgiven you. So how do you cultivate love for others? Well, consider how much you've been forgiven. Consider what Christ has done for you. In Luke chapter 7, Jesus tells a parable of two debtors. He says one owed 50 denarii and the other owed 500. Both are forgiven their debts. And he says, which one will love more? The obvious answer, the one who has been forgiven more. He goes on to say, the one who, one who has been forgiven much loves much. That is how we grow our love for others. Consider the forgiveness you have received. Consider what Christ has done for you. And if you find yourself struggling with bitterness, a lack of forgiveness, you know, people who disappoint, someone who constantly lets you down, relationships that are hard, someone that's, that's just thankless for all your labors, you start to take those things personally. You start to focus on self. Maybe you start to view people as obstacles. Just consider when you grumble in your heart against those people, you might in those moments be forgetting God's love for you. You might be forgetting the forgiveness that you have received. You have affection from God. You have favor from God. You have sins forgiven. In heaven, you've been declared not guilty. The church should be the most loving place in the world, the most welcoming place, the most forgiving place, because we have been loved, we have been forgiven. Just consider back to the, the church in Ephesus in Revelation 2, where this church ends up. 
And just consider, what would a church look like that lost its love? What would their relationships look like? Probably a lack of forgiveness of others, holding grudges, presuming on people's motives, entitlement, forgetting what God has done in the gospel, pride that would creep in, start to imagine that, man, I'm really doing something for God. He really needs me. He really needs my gifts and abilities. As you get to Revelation 2, you you see the, the pride that could creep up. You do all these things. You fight all these battles. You let pride creep in. You start to imagine that I did something to earn this. You start to keep track of all your labors. Look at what I have done, God, for you. Look what I have done to build your church. When we should be saying the the words of Christ, Luke 17.10, where he says, after you have done all of these things which you have been commanded, you, you should say, we are unworthy slaves. We have only done what was our duty. Seeing Christ rightly in the gospel allows us to see ourselves rightly. The outcome of all of this is humility. Not to to talk lowly of ourselves, but to actually see ourselves as lowly, as slaves. Just think about the damage that pride would do to a church. Consider again 1 Corinthians 13. Pride is impatient. It's unkind. Easily takes offense. Keeps records of wrongs. High view of my own assessment. It's not loving. You see, a loving church is a humble church. Those things go hand in hand. This is what the gospel does. It humbles us. It allows us to see ourselves rightly, to see each other rightly, to see what we deserve, to feel the weight of what we owe, to have thankfulness for what Christ has done for us. So we must keep in front of us these truths, that I am a a child of the King of heaven, and I have been purchased by the blood of Christ. And then knowing these truths, now we can be a conduit of love for others. Uh, We should be the most loving group of people in the world, in this room, God's church, his family, the kindest, most gracious, people who say the the hardest, most loving things to each other, people who forgive, people who serve sacrificially one another. When people walk into this room from the outside, they should say there is something different about these people. It's hard to put a finger on. But man, they, they love each other. They serve each other. And as we become a church that's more and more defined by love in the way that this church has been so faithfully, we we lock arms again together and we point to Christ, this main thing, this main priority. We say, let us together pursue Christ. This primary motivation, a love for Christ. Let us not grow cold for the one who first loved us and gave himself for us. Would you pray with me? Jesus, even in these words, we feel our, our weakness, we feel our lack of love, our, our oftentimes indifference to you, uh, the, just the resident flesh, the selfishness that it creeps in so often. And I pray that you would just help us to have a gospel humility, a humility that's produced by your spirit in those who love you, that we would cling tighter to these truths that we would by faith walk one day at a time clinging to these promises, that we would walk as those who are loved, God, by you, as those who are purchased by the blood of Christ, and that this church would be just a witness to the watching world 
as they watch lives that have been transformed by the gospel, that, that sacrificially love and serve one another, so that in all of this, Jesus, what people see is not just, oh, those people love each other, but what they see is, Jesus, you have done something in that church so that you would get the credit and the praise. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.